Green's guy is not like a deadbeat. Okay, whatever. Like, go <laughs> go help Carrie. You know, go once again make Carrie cry because she realized she just she messed up the best man she ever had. Like, that's your place, John. The Corbett. best. Capital T H E E V best. Hello everyone, this is Alex. And this is Em. Welcome to the latest of the good, the bad, the basic. This is the podcast for nostalgic Gen X and millennials and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we love, what we hate, and what was just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to, and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, Become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode bonuses, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and much more. Join the GGB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. On today's episode, we'll be diving into our latest season, Families, and discussing the chronicles of the Braverman family, the stars of NBC's Parenthood. Inspired loosely by the 1989 film and the 1990 television series of the same name, Parenthood chronicles the lives of three generations of a large, middle-class California family. The original 1990 series also aired on NBC, but lasted only one season, so NBC's risk was even larger in in their reputation on the line by financing a reboot. But the gamble more than paid off. NBC has always been a great home for family dramas, and it certainly would have been a better fit for the WB's Jack and Bobby as well as Everwood. With the Parenthood reboot, the network proved just how powerful it could be. So what do we think of this family drama? Stay tuned. you guys some brief info on parenthood um as we mentioned it is based on the 1989 film directed by ron howard and ron howard was one of the executive producers of this series now in the film um the family is named the buckman family but now we have the Bravermans, a much better name, by the way. And the developer of the show is Jason Caton, who did um, Friday Night Lights and a bunch of other shows. Um, you know, uh, Parenthood is a family drama, serial drama, dramedy. It's got nice moments of levity. And we have three generations of family. So to clear up any confusion that may ensue later, let's just clarify the generations of family and the order the the order of birth right now we start with zeke braverman and his wife camille they're the matriarch and patriarch of the family and then we have their children adam sarah crosby and julia and their children adam's children um hattie max and later nora Sarah's children, Amber and Drew, Crosby's children, Jabbar, and then later Aida, and then um, Julia's children, um, Sydney, and then later 
Victor and an unnamed baby girl, two unnamed baby girls by the end of the series. So that's where we are at. Um, Adam's married to Christina. Julia is married to Joel. So let's jump right in. Um, the first season was only 13 episodes long. I really love the Parenthood pilot. Like I said, my criteria for a pilot is introduce us to the characters and give us a good idea of what kind of people they are and who we're working with. Set the tone early. What did you think of the Parenthood pilot? I like it. Uh, it's funny. Like when, So I suggested that we watch this show and... I did not remember a lot of this show uh, I discovered as I was rewatching it. But yeah, the pilot's really satisfying. It's the characters are really engaging. I think you really feel for this family. And you and if and even if this is not the family that you grew up with, your like this family does not mirror your family. This I think just like the strength of the actors and the strength of the writing make you feel for these people. They're like, oh, I want this to be my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way. I was a little bit overwhelmed by the overwhelming whiteness of the Braven- Braverman family. Same. But <laughs> but they are relatable. Um, you know, and I was telling Alex this in a private message. When people say they come from large families, this is the type of family that I would imagine. Like, don't just say like your family is a big family just because it's got a lot of people in it. If y'all really don't fuck with each other like that, (laughs) you know? Same, because I technically come from a large family, but like, we don't really talk to each other. (laughs) Right. But like the Bravermans, like, and I can't stress this enough, you guys, they always show up, whether it's like someone graduating from high school or one of the little kids, like little league baseball games, Or, you know, um, someone is ill and they don't even have to be that ill, honestly. Like the whole clan will descend upon them and go check on them and go counsel them or be there for them. Like you're, you're never alone in this family. You're never alone. And like, you're, they're always in each other's business all the time. It's great. Yeah. I mean, and it's not even like, it's not even bad. Like it's not one of those families. And we've seen these kind of families a lot on television where it's a big family and everyone's in each other's business, but no one really gives a shit about other people. They just like to keep tabs on each other to have like ammunition to use against each other at a later time. (laughs) Right. Like, it's not like that. The Braverman family really cares deeply about each other. Like their number one priority is the family and it really shows it really shows from the very first episode in that first episode um one of the first people we meet in the family are sarah um the second eldest of zeke and camille's children we meet sarah and her kids amber and drew when they are leaving um their current place of residence to go live with sarah's parents camille and zeke so sarah's in her mid-30s and she's moving into her parents' house with her two kids because she can't count on their dad, her ex-husband, to help her at all or help the children. You know, just the fact that they're opening their doors to uh, their daughter and their two grandkids is a big deal because I've watched shows where family members will be like, I love you so much, but nah, you can't stay here. Right. (laughs) That's always like a big, and I feel like that that sort of plot or that like reaction is definitely like a staple of like television of like, they'll like they'll come to like the front door and people be like, Oh no girl, like you gotta go. 
<laughs> right. Or like, I wouldn't be helping you if I gave you a place to stay. You got to learn to sit on your own two feet, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this plot so many times, so many times. And they don't come to stay with her parents for a little while. It ends up being quite a few years that right. they're living with Zeke and Camille. And they never make them feel put out or like they're a burden. And they really take to these kids very, very quickly. Um, Camille and Amber form this very strong relationship. Her grandmother teaches her how to cook and they become very close friends. And Zeke and Drew form a very close relationship as well because his father leaves a lot to be desired and Zeke basically gives him the father figure he never had. Drew is so interesting because it's like uh, Drew has all these, not only Zeke, but Zeke, Adam at one point uh, when Adam Mm -hmm. sort of can't deal with, not that Adam can't deal with Max, but Adam can't like have the traditional quote unquote traditional father-son relationship with Max. Like, he very much latches on to Drew. There's like that whole plot line where like he and Drew learn baseball together or something. Right. Um, he, he does go to Crosby every now and then, but clearly like his like stronger male influences are Zeke and Adam. And it's kind of cool because at some point in the show, everybody in the family is talking to everybody else. So like you, it's very hard to get a clear idea, honestly, of who, anyone's favorites are because at one point or another every member of the family will interact with another member of the family in a meaningful way that's true and that's actually one of the stronger points i think about the show in general is we've and we've talked about this about how some writers and writing teams cannot like don't have a good handle on like their other characters and they've casted an ensemble They've casted an ensemble to do an ensemble drama, but they don't actually know how to do that. And because, like, they will then ignore those characters. Parenthood doesn't do that. Parenthood, True Blue, incorporates and writes for each and every single person in the ensemble and thinks and definitely thinks out and has planned out a vision for these characters and like understand who these characters are and how they're interacting with not only the people in their immediate family, but then um, everybody else uh, in, in their orbit. Right. I never got the sense that um, the writers didn't care about a particular character. I never got the sense that they didn't know what direction they were heading in with a particular character. And I think everybody had really believable, relatable character arcs that were in line with who they were already established to be. Right. I agree. Um, The show's just really good. So season one, some things you learn about season one, Joel is already, Joel, Joel and Julia are already married. Julia is the Zeke and Camille's youngest and they have a daughter, Sydney. Um, and we already meet Julia and we see that like, she's a workaholic. Joel's a stay at home dad. We already talked about Sarah and her kids moving in with her parents. We also meet Crosby, who is the third child, the youngest son. And he works at a recording studio. He's like a record producer. He's just, he lives on a houseboat, very carefree, you know, just living day to day, not really any plans for the future. And then a wrench is thrown in his plans in the cutest, most possible way when a one-night stand he has lets him know that he has a five-year-old son, Jabbar, 
and he has to radically shift his thinking and basically become a father overnight. And then, of course, we meet um, Adam, the oldest son, and his wife, Christina. They have two children at this point, Hattie and Max. And this is the season when they, when Max's behavior, which they the show tells us has always been erratic, comes to a head, and they get Max diagnosed, and they realized... Um, after his teacher tells him to go to a doctor that their son Max is autistic and that he has Asperger's syndrome. Right. So every all the groundwork is laid out very well in that pilot and within the first season. Um, we meet the characters. I don't have any clear favorites in the first season. That takes a, a while to develop. But I will say you have a very clear, you know, clear functional analysis of who these people are, who they're supposed to be, and what they mean to each other. I think all of these storylines are great. And one of the things I love about the Braverman family is that even though the family is really, really close, we have lots of different personalities here, which is great. The the personalities of everyone is very, like, distinct and clear. And the character work is just so good. It is. It's very, very clear character work and very good work done from the writers as well as the actors. Um, particularly the actors, because there are some things that, like, you would be hard, I think, to nail, but this show definitely nails it with regards to the acting. But but everybody really brings their A-game. This show is probably one of the most pitch-perfectly cast shows that we've reviewed so far. I agree. Um, and I want to say, you know, we've talked about other shows being the blueprint of fill-in-the-blank. Parenthood is unequivocally the blueprint of writing an ensemble family drama. No Mm -hmm. character is left behind. No one is left hanging. The show continues to make sense. Like, other shows will do a family drama, which is three or four people, and completely neglect one member of the family. Like, it's usually the youngest sibling, too. Um, (laughs) But, like, Parenthood, like, no child left behind, you guys. No family member left behind. (laughs) Right, right. And, like, it's, and it's, listen, it's just impressive, because, like, you know, not everybody can write an ensemble drama. A lot of people are not good at it. So, like, t- do you guys understand how many people I just named? <laughs> like, it's not even just five people, okay? Like, we're talking about, like, when we enter the show, we have a family of over a dozen people. And then more people keep joining the family. Right. People keep... <laughs> that's true. And then... Oh, gosh. it's It's nuts. So... But they handle it, like, marvelously, masterfully. They handle it so masterfully. So is there anything, like, in particular, like, in season one? Because season one is such a short, like, order. It's like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, your very typical 13 episodes. Is there anything in particular that happens in season one that you wanted to touch on? I think that the one th- the one thing that stood out to me in season one, and it's it's a small thing in in relative to what happens on the show, but they're toward the end of the season. Um, Amber and Hattie are at the same high school. Amber being a year older than Hattie, and I only bring this up to so that you know the order of the ages of the grandchildren, which I'll get into later. But they're at the same high school, and. Hattie and her boyfriend are having a fight and Amber sleeps with Hattie's boyfriend. And this creates tension between the girls as well as Christina and Sarah. Um, But it's interesting because as angry as they are, they never like, 
I never feel like the moms say things that like you can't take back, if that makes sense. Like they never forget, even when they're fighting, that they're a family. And eventually, um, Amber feels so bad about what she did that she runs away and her mom can't go get her. So Christina and Hattie come pick her up and they embrace her and they hug her. And it's so clear that they're, they were worried about her. And it's clear that like, no matter how badly anyone in the family fucks up, like no one in the family is going to turn their back on them. Right. That, that Steve, Amber, Hattie plotline. Yikes. Um, I remember thinking, I'm trying to remember if I liked, I'm trying to decide if I remember, like, I liked how they handled it. Like, I liked that, how, like, what you just said. Um, and I, I like that the girls eventually, like, reconcile pretty much by the next season. Um, or, like, not even the next season. I think a couple episodes. Yeah. A couple episodes after they, they reconcile. But I remember feeling like, oh, no, yeah, it's fine. I think I think your problem is the same as my problem. Like she, Amber claimed to have such such strong feelings for Steve, but then we never saw Steve ever again. Yeah, we never saw Steve. <laughs> no, Steve I'm not even gonna be mad. So I guess like he's just like a he's a wrench to just throw in there. I guess that's fine. We that's true. We forget all about Steve. He's not even mentioned. I think in the second season. No, I, I um, think. he's not. I think they mention him way, way, way later in season um, five or six and Amber and Hattie are talking and joking and they're like, remember that guy Steve from high school? And like they're uh-huh. laughing themselves. But like they, we never see him again. The girls never see him again. And now the one sticking point about this show, and it's not really an issue for me personally, is that when it comes to guest characters, um, they are treated more or less very disposably. But again, because they treat the larger ensemble cast so well, I really don't care. <laughs> right. They're like, like they'll be all right. They'll be all right. They'll be cool. So season um, one, what are some of your favorite episodes of season one? So season one, obviously the pilot, episode three, deep end of the pool. Oh, that's the amazing like episode where Julia attempts to teach Sydney how to swim when that's one in, of my favorites too <laughs> where Julia really should have just sat there and ate her food <laughs> <laughs> but she um, learned though didn't she she did she had she had a lesson she, she <laughs> learned a lesson in her own um right the big o this is that's when uh Crosby finally tells like the whole family about like Jabbar oh uh and that's episode six episode eight rubber band ball and that's when Jasmine introduces Crosby to her family, which is good because I'm gl- like, I think it's important that, and I'm glad that we see that Jasmine like has a family of her own, mm-hmm. although it's right. awkward because she lied to them about stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 10, Namaste No More. That's uh, when Julia tries to like coach a soccer team, Julia. Um, and... Then episode episode twelve, Team Braverman. Uh, that's the autism walk, and then episode thirteen, Lost and Found. That's the season one season finale. So before we get into season two, let's talk a bit about like Max and this Asperger's story. 
a bit. Yeah. So we talked about character arcs and I, I said how everyone's character arc is kind of perfect. That includes Max's. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. Max's entire personality is built around his Asperger's and basically his parents um, accommodating it, get, trying to get the, the extended family to accommodate it and trying to get everyone he comes in contact with to accommodate it. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, um, we personally don't support Autism Speaks. I understand that older autistics, um, adults, not children who can't speak for themselves, are not here for that foundation. Um, they don't believe that it supports their interests. And they don't like the way that it portrays autism as a diagnosis. That said... The show does have like a whole angle with Autism Speaks in that very first season. And I absolutely feel like the Max character in large part was was written from the perspective of a parent who has a child with autism, as opposed to another character we meet in the latter half of the show who is a much more realistic depiction of an adult with autism. But I do think that the Max and Autism storyline is, for better or for worse, it really shows how close the Braverman family is and how well a lot of Max's moods and behaviors are treated because Max is definitely a high-maintenance child, the most high-maintenance of the Bravermans, hands down. And I will say this, I think when parenthood came out, like Asperger's and like high functioning autism, like, and all these things were the language around it, not the condition itself. Because, you know, I think we're both big maintainers of like, nothing is new. I think no, nothing in like, I think in the world is new. It's just what's changed is that we have, we finally have language to talk about it. But I think one of the most frustrating things about the Max character, and I think, and when this show came out, all this language around autism, around uh, Asperger's and people who are high-functioning autistics, all of it was so new. And I do think since this show has come out, in terms of, like, representation of people who have Asperger's, like, it's grown leaps and bounds. Like, Hank, as you said, is, like, great. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Hank doesn't show up to, like, what, season five, season six-ish? Um, yeah, he's supposed to be season five. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's like, what, five years after um, and after the sort of premiere of the show. And then like, you know, now we have I think there's a character on Good Trouble that feels really authentic. Um, uh, That girl, the girl's boss. Oh, Evan Speck. Yeah. He's he's a great character, I think. We also have a few characters on Atypical and we have like and we even have like um, so Desna's brother on um on Claws, I think is a good representation too, because we not only get to see how his um, autism has affected him, but how growing up, you know, in the foster care system and growing up a black male and that, that, that intersection that he lives in, I think is really well depicted. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Particularly because um, Desna's brother wouldn't even have the access that the Bravermans have, right? In terms right. of like hiring a behavioral aid and like having all these special schools and all these things to like help Max from diagnosis um, going forward. 
they just sort of had Desna and, you know, has just had to sort of figure it out on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but then he's this like, you know, he's this fully realized character who has interests and feelings and does things and has things that he wants to do and, and yearns for like a sense of independence and then can demonstrate that in a, in a healthy way. Right. And, you know, and I can't stress this strongly enough, Max is absolutely a character that was written from the perspective of someone raising an autistic child. Jason Katim's, um, his own son is autistic. And I absolutely believe that a lot of Max is a projection of not necessarily how his son is, but how he viewed his son. Mm, that's hard. That's, that's not like... I mean, that's, that's, mm, right. I Cause know. I can't, I, I'm not going to say that it's a representation of how the kid is. I think that's mm-hmm. a disservice to the actual child. Right. Right. To just say, Oh, like, Oh, obviously you're just like this max character, but I definitely think that that was how he was viewed. Um, and the depiction of max comes from that of, of maybe someone who, even though they love their child very much, has a perspective and a view of their child that isn't congruent with how they actually are because there is that great divide between that person with that disability and the person who doesn't have it, no matter how much you love them. Real. Okay. Real and fair. Yikes. So, and you guys will talk about Max a lot as this goes on because Max is like, He's a high maintenance character. He's a my he's really high maintenance. In everybody's plot. <laughs> really in everyone's plot. Um season one is great. I love, I think it's solid. I think it's a good season. I agree. I think that season one is really, really good. I really love this family. Um, like even in moments where like I'm deeply annoyed by the characters, and everybody's gonna take their turn being annoying. I promise you. Except maybe like Drew and Camille, everybody takes turns being annoying. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, so season, uh, but it's good. It's really, really good. It's good. Um, so season two picks up with Adam still sort of working at the shoe factory, but creative, but there are problems I think within the company, um, or we're starting to see the beginning problems of the company and, Jasmine and Jabbar have um, gone to New York um, because Jasmine is auditioning. She's a dancer, so she's, you know, in New York doing that, like, sort of audition shuffle. Like, yeah, audition hustle. If you're, like, a creative or a performer, an actor, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That that year-round hustle to get parts. Adam has gotten Sarah a sort of internship... uh, situation at his shoe company um so she can hopefully like get some experience and then get um a job that is not bartending and work her way up and sarah uh in true lorelei gilmore fashion starts to hook up with adam's boss who's like a sleazeball and is also billy baldwin yeah i mean it's not even the attractive baldwin you guys <laughs> um <laughs> so she starts hooking up with this dude who's like you know enamored with her because she's charming and she's pretty um but you know he and, and it's in this season when he is not that great of a boss to adam adam's pretty much running the company adam is a person that the other employees go to adam is a person that they trust and 
he never gets Adam any credit for this, but then tries to take advantage of the fact by getting Adam to lay off employees for him um, as the company starts to go through transition. Right. So Adam has, like, real issues with his boss, like, very real, like, just the whole situation is just really right. messed up. The whole situation is messed up. And Sarah, like... And Sarah, like, I guess, has never met a boundary that she never wanted to cross because (laughs) she invites this boss person that she that she knows Adam doesn't like. Like, and Adam hasn't, like, I think, been out and out. And yeah, and and I guess a credit to Adam's character is like Adam doesn't out and out tell her that, like, he's a piece of shit. Like, he's just like, you know, he's doing a lot of things. He's not a good person. I don't want him around. If you can just, like, respect that, like, it's just, just trust me. Um, and she invites him to, like, Thanksgiving. Mm. Uh, when Adam expressly is like, do not invite this person. Like, I don't want to spend any more time with them. Like, I'm so anxious because of everything that's happened. And <laughs> what does Sarah do? She, in- she invites the boss to Thanksgiving. And it's so awkward to watch. <laughs> Well, technically, she'd already invited him. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. She already invited him. <laughs> like she didn't wait. She didn't waste no time, you guys. She didn't waste no time. She already invited him. Everything was. It was just really, really bad. And Adam Braverman is someone who I didn't like him in season one, honestly, because of the interactions with his daughter Hattie, which I still think were a little bit like misogynist. But I'll tell you this thing about Adam: like Adam is a family man. He's not just committed to Christina and his kids, but like the larger family is like his biggest priority. He he's absolutely the quintessential oldest child always thinking about everybody always trying to make shit easier for his siblings his mom and dad everybody right because when zeke because when everything happens with the bad investment that zeke makes adam is the one that is like it's adam it's primarily adam and julia that they're the ones that are scrambling to sort of fix it Mm -hmm. like adam is the one person in the family if like you go to him with a problem if he can fix it, he absolutely will. Like, no hesitation. Right. Because that's just, that's just, like, his personality. He'll take on the responsibility to help his family. He's very family-oriented. Another really great, like, plot, subplot in season two was the Halloween episode. They never, the, the family had never really taken Max out for Halloween because, like, candles, I believe, scare him. Right, like, like candles in dark rooms. So the whole family, and I mean the whole family, they had like Christina came up with a plan and certain routes they were gonna take, and then Zeke comes in and is like, you know what? It's gonna be fine. The whole family will be there to get have his back. It's gonna be fine. And then when he sees, you know, Sydney and Jabbar, who are younger, go into the haunted house, this gives him the courage to go into the haunted house too. And that was like a really great episode. Right, that's a really great. That's such a sweet episode. Um, also, season two is where we meet. Um, oh, so this is like a quick subplot before we, before I talk about what I was going to talk about. Quick subplot, uh, season two, episode 16. So there's this episode where, um, cause Max is like hardcore, like into bugs and stuff where mm-hmm. Adam and Christina are going to hire this 
person to like work Max's birthday party and show like all the kids like bugs and Max is like super hype about it because like bugs are like his thing. And it's called like Amazing Andy's Wonderful World of Bugs or whatever. And the guy who plays him, uh, Amazing Andy, played by Michael Emerson, another OG, another heavy hitter, mm-hmm. comes and... Wait, wait, wait. He's, um, really quickly, guys, he's on Evil right now. Yeah, he's on Evil right now. Um, Michael Emerson. You you know Michael Emerson. You'll know his face. Like, Evil, he was on Lost on every TV show that you can ever think of. He's been on it. So, Michael Emerson comes to work the party and... They almost don't hire him specifically because he has Asperger's. And I was like, and they go through like this little speech of like, well, like, how can we trust that like Max isn't going to like act up? And they do this thing and they're just like a trip. And like, I was just like, wow, white people are a trip. They do that. like (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Hold on. I don't know if I'm misremembering the episode, but I remember they didn't want to hire him because they said he was weird and too particular. And then it wasn't until later that, like, she's talking to someone who'd hired him before and they tell Christina that he is autistic, which I feel like they should have realized that she's like, okay, now we have to hire him because this could be Max one day. No, yeah, that's what happens. But then they're like, but then there's another conversation in the bathroom of like, honey, like, we just can't, like, we can't do it because. Um, it'll be too much and like Max will act out and like Matt, what if Max like has a break? Like they, they, in, they start to invent reasons of why they yeah. cannot hire him. Right. And in that really typical, like white person, like fashion. And it's funny. Cause even Christina brings up of like, well, how would we feel if like in the future, somebody doesn't hire Max? Like, somebody does exactly what we're doing right now, which is discriminating against somebody because they have Asperger's. And they're like, we can't be expected to just, like, heal the world. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm no. like, why people are trip. And the only reason why it doesn't, the only reason why they don't fire him really is because, like, they've already paid him. Well, yeah, they've already paid him They've ar- and they've already booked him. And he just... Uh, the Andy character, he just works on, you know, he just works on his, his time. So he doesn't like, he doesn't even, so he's already coming to the house to like, you know, measure and stuff. And because they're like, you know, quote unquote, good white people, they don't know how to be like, you're fired. And so he, and he doesn't, he can't read and he can't really read the social, their social cues that well. So he just continues with his business that he knows how to do. Right. Um, I think the thing that won them over in the end was, like, he gave them, like, a stuffed bug, like, a stuffed animal. And and he says something to Christina along the lines of, and she's like, is this for us? He's like, yes, it's for you. I give them to all of my um, paying customers because um, he says something about how giving clients a gift will ensure repeat business and good referrals. And then she's like, okay. So he clearly knows what he's doing, and it's just, like, us, like— like basically discriminating the way that we wouldn't want someone to discriminate against our kid. I bring it up because I, I love it because like, it is exactly how like white people talk (laughs) when they're getting ready to like discriminate against somebody because of something. And they're trying to convince themselves that they're not like the language is pitch perfect. And I remember thinking, ah, God, that is so mm, that's chef's kiss. Like it's so accurate. (laughs) 
what I loved about that Amazing Andy episode, actually, because I, I didn't even think about what you just said, which is completely 100% true. I was just thinking about Andy as a person and how he relates to Max. So Andy is really very particular. He takes measurements. Things have to be done in the right amount of space with the right lighting. There can only be so many people attending the party. This, that, and the third. He's very particular. And, you know, they made up these, like, BS reasons, like, well, we can't get all these kids to listen to him or obey him or whatever. And basically, like, projecting their own discriminatory thoughts and ideas onto these children. And um, what I thought was interesting was that anytime Andy made a rule, and he would clearly lay out why that why he was making that rule and why that rule was important— Max was instantly on board. It's Adam and Christina that thought it was ridiculous. And I keep going back to that episode and thinking to myself, Max isn't the one who has issues understanding authority and boundaries. You guys are. Mm, Real. Right, because Max will only do what... One Max will just do whatever they let him get away with. Right? Right. And... Max, but yeah, it's true. Like when Andy comes, like Max instantly relates to him and it's obvious why, right? Because they both have the same conditions. They understand and they understand how each other operates. Right. Right. Like Andy doesn't speak in metaphor. He's very clear about what he wants, what needs to be done and why it needs to be done that way. And Max is like, okay, cool. We're going to make it happen. We're going to make, we're going to fall in line. We're going to obey your rules. Adam and Christina are the ones that are like, this is ridiculous. And I'm like, listen, y'all could learn something from Andy about how to talk to and relate to this child. (laughs) Right. Um, And, and in the end, he's amazing with the kids. He does a a great job. I know he is amazing. Andy. Um, so that that there's that plot. So then let's get into this this Alex Hattie situation. So in season two, we meet a character named Alex, uh, played by the now crazy famous Michael B. Jordan. Alex meet Alex works at the food bank. Yes, he works at the food bank in the city, and Hattie. And he knows Hattie through Camille because Camille goes and volunteers at the food bank. Um, And Hattie starts spending all of her time at the food bank because, obviously, Michael (laughs) B. Jordan. You know, whatever. Hattie's into Michael B. Jordan because who wouldn't be? And we find out that Hattie, first of all, he's, like, 19. But then, like, he's had, like, a really, like, hard life like so he has his GED but he had to take it on his own he's a recovering alcoholic he's an AA he's working the program he's been like abandoned by his parents and he's he's sort of like the he's what we like we we talk about this M and I like the perfect sort of black character like when they write if like when sometimes when white people write black characters they make them completely perfect um, mm-hmm. And ha- Alex, I think, definitely fits into that completely perfect, arc- like, Black character archetype. So Alex is 19, Hattie's 16, and Hattie wants to date Alex. And Adam <laughs> and Christina, sorry, is like, they're like, no, it's a no, absolutely not. Even though Alex is pretty perfect and is somebody of strong moral character, Adam Christina could put the gabosh on it. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so it's like Alex said, um, when we meet this guy, Alex, um, he's not working. First of all, he's running 
the the soup kitchen. Let's put some respect on his name. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, like he coordinates everything, um, the schedules, the cooking, everything. But it's like Alex said, he's a character that is really well done because he lives very much in the gray. Like, um, he's not a perfect character. He's not a complete stereotype. And um, he's relatable. He's likable. And the show never completely lets you forget that he is Black. And we'll talk about how this comes up in later seasons. And the fact that he's a recovering alcoholic is really the sticking point as far as um, Adam is concerned. Adam very clearly, immediately likes Alex very, very much, but he cannot get past um, the fact that this is a recovering alcoholic and he doesn't want this element around his daughter. And Christina cannot get past the age difference. Christina, more than Adam, is much more against the relationship um and the show you know and what she says alludes to the fact that her mother and father met under similar circumstances and it ended tragically and she's basically terrified that her daughter will follow in her mother's footsteps and just end up with a loser and when she's young and be stuck with this person for the rest of her life she's terrified like on literally in tears thinking about um, Hattie dating Alex because she's convinced that it will end badly. Um, and she's so convinced that it scares the audience a little bit. Like we're thinking maybe she has something really t- real to be worried about. Luckily she doesn't, but Hattie, when her parents refuse to accept this relationship between her and Alex, she moves in with her grandparents. So it's a real crowded house. Sarah, Adam, Drew, and Hattie are there. And of course, they're not going to turn their granddaughter away, but this causes tension between Christina and Camille. Like we say, because he is like of such strong moral character, is like, I, I'm not going to date you without your parents being cool with it. Like, I, and and not only that, he doesn't even want to keep secrets. Like, I'm not going to date you in secret. I'm not going to go behind anybody's back. Like, that's, like, kid bullshit. Like, I'm not into that. Which, because Alex is so mature, because he has gone through so much life experience, because he is living on his own in his own apartment, um, and because he doesn't even want to sneak around with Hattie because he doesn't want to keep secrets from her parents, it doesn't make sense to me that... He, Alex would be into Hattie in real life. To me, it, it feels like Alex would be into somebody older, um, like maybe like a 22 or 21 year old. No, that's real. And I see that. Um, so I watch the episodes with them a lot. And what I notice is a few things that I didn't notice the first time. The first thing is that Alex was hesitant to be in a relationship with anyone because he's working on his sobriety, which is like a really big thing in AA to like basically not use people as substitutes for your addiction. And the thing is he devotes so much of his time to the soup kitchen that, and he doesn't go out to like bars or clubs or anything like that. Cause sobriety, like whomever he's going to meet, he's going to meet there And I feel like Hattie is much more mature around Alex than she is around her parents and her brother. In fact, I didn't see a Hattie that was immature when in her conversations or in her dealings with Alex until, you know, later on in the series when they're about to break up. And like she's doing like like bullshit high school girl shit. Um, Like, but until then, 
I could really see like a more mature side of Hattie and a more relaxed side of Hattie that I never saw in her interactions with her family. So it kind of sort of like, I can see how it happens because she's there, right? She's at the soup kitchen. She's always there. She's really cool. And I mean, most of the people that he meets at the soup kitchen are going to be like women with like children and like families or like older people. Like we're, we're talking about in like the scope of things and like the homeless community and who is comprised of that. It's largely like, you know, older people or families. So I can, it kind of sort of made sense. I didn't feel like it was too thrown together, but I, I agree that Alex is a person. I think like someone in their twenties would be better suited for his personality. Right. Or I would have bought it better if it had been Amber, I think. Yeah, because Amber, like she's she in season one, it's established that she has a crush on her English teacher, Mr. Sear, who um who actually has strong feelings for Sarah, which are reciprocated. So Amber having a crush on an older man um makes kind of perfect sense actually and he's not that much older than amber when he was when hattie was 16 amber was 17 so like alex is only two years older than amber so that would have made a little bit more sense but again she was never at the soup kitchen she was never in a position to meet alex before hattie did because i really didn't see um something really interesting about hattie until i saw the way that like she fought um to be with alex which i thought like it it really gave the character like a strength that I had not seen prior, which I enjoyed. You think so? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I guess like, I, I think I find the, I th- like I got when she's like, you guys don't understand me. That's when I was like, okay, yeah. Hattie is like 16. Um, and when she like up and moves out of her parents' house over it, I was like, I don't know. I thought that was a bit much. I'm not going to lie. I could understand where Hattie was coming from because I think that the way that Christina and Adam parent Hattie, even though it's not perfect, it's very good and it's their personal best. But then you juxtapose that to the way that they parent Max where, and you can't help but see this, especially when in Hattie's perspective, when you're the oldest child and this younger child who's autistic is being constantly accommodated. And she actually says this in season one, it's not the, the Asperger's it's Max. Even before you knew he had Asperger's, you guys are just let him do whatever he wants. So she's asking to date someone who's, who, you know, is respectful to her parents, whom is a responsible person. And they're saying no, but they have endless accommodations for Max. I can see how a person would get fed up with that shit. I mean, that's real. I, I mean, see, that is real. I guess I just, um, I understand that. And I understand why she's mad. And I think that's all valid. But I think the actions that she takes to resolve it, I think, speak to her immaturity. I think... The, the times where I think I see Hallie, like, really being mature, really being like, okay, like, yeah, this girl is older, is when, um, is like that, is like when she is talking about, like, the Max and the situation with Max, and when, um, in the next season, but we can sort of bring it up now, when Max, like, just takes off on his own, and nobody is, like, sort of, and then, yeah, Max takes off on his own and goes through this joyride through the city, and when they finally get Max back, you know, she's the only one to be like, do you understand which, why you, what you did was wrong? Like, Mac, uh, Adam and Christina are ready to let Max just, you know, 
let him off the hook. And Hattie's the only person that's like, listen, what you did was wrong. Do you see how you disrupted everybody's lives? Do you see why, like, you can't do that? Do you understand why not everything is about you? Um, also, when she essentially does all her college shit by herself, um, completely by herself, because once again, Adam and Christina are super preoccupied with Max. Um, though mm-hmm. it's in those moments that like I really see Hattie's maturity. But in this Alex situation, like I guess like initially trying to get uh to date him, I, I was like, no, like she's 16. Yeah, and you know, again, I can understand their reservations um with Alex, but I think again, you know, she's 16. To her, it just feels like Max always gets what he wants and she never gets what she wants. But it's interesting what you say about her interactions insofar as Max, because I always felt that like Zeke, Sarah and Hattie were the only people in the family that were honest about like not constantly enabling Max, Max's behavior. Um, Hattie does sleep with Alex on prom night. This is after her parents give her permission to see him. Adam finds a pregnancy test and blows up thinking that it's Hattie's, but it's actually Christina's because Christina is pregnant. And one of the larger plots is that Max has given a behavioral aid, Gabby, played by Minka Kelly. And when Crosby's having problems with Jasmine, who he's in a committed relationship right now, Jasmine, his son Jabbar's mother, he cheats on um, Jasmine with Gabby after Max's birthday party with the incredible Andy. And, of course, this results in Jasmine leaving him, Gabby quitting, and for some reason, Adam and Christina never getting another behavioral aid, which that kid desperately needs. Right, he desperately needed that behavioral aid. <laughs> like, okay, so the best behavioral aid in Berkeley left. You better go call up the second or third best right now. There has to be more than one behavioral aid in Berkeley, particularly since it looks like she's getting paid super well. Uh, Minka Kelly. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's who plays the behavioral aid. Minka Kelly. She was also on Friday Night Lights. There are a lot of Friday Night Lights casting crossovers to this show. We also meet um, Seth Holt, um, Amber and Drew's dad, played by John Corbett, who's a, an actor that I really, really like. Um, like his roles are just very believable, and he—he's actually. Um, and I was thinking this when I saw him. He's actually like the alcoholic version of Christopher because he's a deadbeat, but he's—he's he's a fairly lovable deadbeat. Aside well, from his interactions with Zeke, he—you can, you can actually see how charming this guy is and why Sarah fell in love with him. Listen, every time John Corbett tries to play like these like rough and tumble like deadbeat people, I'm just like. John Corbett, go bone Nia Vardalos in her car because, like, you know, her dad won't let you up. She won't let you up <laughs> in her house. Or go go help uh, Kate Hudson raise those scraggly children in, in Queens. Like, you're you're not supposed to be here. This doesn't make any sense Aww. for you. Poor this, John. The Walgreens guy is not, like, a deadbeat, okay? Whatever. Like, go... <laughs> Go help Carrie, you know, go once again, make Carrie cry because she realized she just, she messed up the best man she ever had. Like, that's your place, John the Corbett. Best. <laughs> the best. Capital T-H-E-E, the best. Um, but no, he still, he plays this, like, lovable deadbeat Amber and Jew's dad. Um, he's, he's like, so in season two, um, we meet him and, like, Amber... 
you know, kind of like try to turn over a new leaf in season two and really buckle down with school. This started happening in season one, but like season two, she's really trying to get into a good college and everything like that. And she has a lot of animosity toward their dad. Like Drew is very much wants his father to be in his life. And I think this is the season where like Zeke calls Seth on Thanksgiving and be like, listen, you need to call your son because he misses you. And so he comes to see his children and we find out that Sarah had a passion for songwriting at one point. And then so she t- takes her hand at screenwriting and Zeke finds a mentor to help her. So Sarah goes from bartending to interning at a shoe company to screenwriting. Um, we're well not screenwriting, playwriting. And she will take her turn at many other careers because she's a very flighty person as the series progresses. But it's completely in line with her character. Like, that's who she is. Right. Yeah. So Max finds out in the worst possible way in season two that he has Asperger's, that he has autism. He finds out like more than halfway through the season, season two, that in a fight between Crosby and Adam over Gabby and Gabby quitting that he has Asperger's, which I thought was so poorly handled from just like a writing perspective, because then you make Asperger seem like something taboo, something to be ashamed of, that his parents kept this from him and got the entire extended family to keep this from him. Right. It's weird that they like hide his diagnosis. Like it makes more sense for them to just be honest about it. Right. So what were some of your favorite episodes in season two? Did you have? Uh, Yes. So I think the things to watch in season two are season one. I think you could actually skip the season opener and I would go straight to Episode two, No Good Deed. Season two, episode four, Date Night. Season two, episode six, Orange Alert. That's the Halloween episode. Season two, episode seven, Seven Names. Um, that's also, I think, where we meet Alex for the first time. Season two, episode eight, If the Boat is a Rockin'. Season two, episode 10, Happy Thanksgiving, which um, is like all the stuff that we talked about earlier. Also, please watch where Jasmine's mom graciously makes these white people sweet potato pie. And she and Crosby almost have set up for everybody. Season two, episode 11, Damage Control. Season oh, season two, episode 13, Opening Night. Season two, episode 14, A House Divided. Season two, episode 15, Just Go Home. That's John Corbett's episode. And then season two, episode 19, and then season two, episode 20, those are like, those are two of the big like play episodes, Sarah's play. And then season two, episode 22, which manages like the fallout from Amber's big car accident, mm-hmm. um, which is good to see. That was one of my favorite episodes. Um, again, I can't stress this enough. The Bravermans always show up, whether it was Max's baseball game or Amber, um, you know, after she gets in a car accident. So season two was Amber's senior year, and she finds out that she didn't get into her college, Berkeley. She had no backup. She wasn't thinking about community college. She just spiraled into a depression, ran off with her old boyfriend, Gary, got into a really bad car accident. 
and every single member of the Braverman family shows up. Like, like Julia and Joel even bring a sleeping Sydney into the emergency room. Everyone shows up. It's a really tender moment until, of course, Jack, um, Max gets mad at Adam because Adam had promised him pancakes and makes a scene in the um, emergency waiting room. And Zeke um, is like this close to chewing him out. Um, but it was great to see everybody show up and like, like Max really doesn't want to be there. That's clear. But everybody else is very worried and very concerned about Amber. And Zeke, of course, is worried about Sarah as well, right? Like that's her kid. We figure out pretty early that Sarah is Zeke's favorite. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So season two is is good to me i personally i think it's solid um besides like a couple of hiccups um i like it for the most part what about you i thought it was very good i actually thought it was better than season one because i thought again season one was a short order it was only 13 episodes season two gave us 22 episodes i was really waiting for the show to like go off the rails on the writing or like leave one of these family members by the wayside and it continued to prove itself as an ensemble family show so i thought season two was great season two is great i love season two so season three picks up um it's sarah's 40th birthday um amber sort of like gets her own place um, and Adam is sort of looking back in season t- two really quick. The shoe company got sold to like some like, you know, millennials and they like make us and they like in true like fashion, they make millennials look crazy. And then Adam ends up, you know, getting laid off from the shoe company. He either gets laid off or he leaves. I can't, I don't remember. Um, but he's gone and now he's sort of looking for, something else because he has to you know feed his family um and figure out what he's going to do next so season season three is sort of picking up with him you know trying to look for something else looking to see like what's gonna happen like what he's gonna do um and all that good stuff yeah adam was fired by his boss Okay. In, um season two like he hated it there but he wasn't gonna leave because he's got mouths to feed um and it was that same episode um later on in that episode that he tells her like i was fired today right, 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 um, right. the same episode that she tells him that she's pregnant with um you know later to be announced baby nora um so i really love season three um and this is this is like this is not uh, a norm for me. I I see a lot of shows start falling off when they start getting real comfortable, but I guess because you are dealing with such a large cast, the writers can never get too comfortable. <laughs> right. Zeke really gives Amber some tough love after her accident because Sarah tries to talk to her and Drew tries to talk to her. And no one's getting through, and then Zeke is like, "I'm about to scare this chick straight," and he takes her to like the wreckage yard, um, where to see what became of the car that her and Gary had been riding in and to see how close to death she was. And he tells her, you know, you're my dream. My kids, you grandkids, you guys are my dream. Amber's his oldest grandchild. And I guess they have like a very special relationship, especially now that she's living with her grandparents. And he's like, you know, you were trying to take my dream away from me and basically try to make her see that this self-destructive 
um, little little trip she was on at the end of season two is not okay. And it affects more than just herself. And I thought that was such a beautiful moment between them. And we're going to have more beautiful moments like that between Amber and her grandparents um, and Drew and the grandparents as well. And even like, you know, Max and Sydney and then later Victor and the grandparents. I think they do a great job of creating really beautiful memories with their grandchildren. You know, I don't think Hattie will ever forget that time that she spent like three weeks living with her grandparents <laughs> out of protest. <laughs> out of protest. Right, right, right. So let's talk a little bit about... So, okay. So eventually what happens with regards to Adam is that Adam... There is a famous recording studio that is like up for sale um, that Crosby wants... And, and Crosby's trying to save it. And it's very, it's very famous. Like lots of people have recorded there and Crosby convinces Adam to go into business with him and to save this recording studio and to work it. And, and they work to make it a successful business in this time. There is sort of like this, they, in this time they hire a receptionist, Rachel and Let's talk a bit about this Adam and Rachel plotline. Of all the plotlines that have ever parenthooded, this was the worst. <laughs> because Rachel basically served as a way to like um, give the Adam character more range, but it did not hit because it ended up being like almost like a character assassination. Adam behaved in ways that Adam Braverman does not behave. Okay, so like explain. Because I feel like... This is the only time I've ever seen a plotline like this play out where like the guy wasn't sleazy and I didn't I didn't think Adam Red is sleazy and I remember thinking like oh that's like a really hard thing to do in a plot like this so and you clearly feel different so I'm interested to hear. Yeah, I didn't think that Adam was sleazy like like he was trying to like scam on this girl Rachel but um you know it, it was. He made it very clear that he was attracted to her, and that other people found her attractive. And you know, talked about how well you didn't have. You don't have to dress so sexy when you come to work. You have more to offer than just your body, which can be read a million different ways. But the culmination of events is when he insists on taking this girl home, and he insists on walking to her to her door. And it's like he's he's playing with fire, and he knows it. Like Adam Braverman is such a cautious person. I would have never seen him behaving in this way previously. Yeah, Christina, like, goes back to work. Because she, so far, she'd just been a stay-at-home mom. That's, like, the, the, the culmination of everything that happens with that that Adam Rachel plot. Yeah. So Christina goes back to work and apparently she had worked in politics prior to this. So like that's her degree field. She starts working for a mayoral candidate, Bob Little. Um, Crosby finds out that Jasmine is dating again. And um, so I guess he sees this as, um, you know, kind of like maybe the situation is lost here. He even attempts this season to, buy a house as like an apology gift for Jasmine. Um, another plot is that Sarah starts um, up her relationship with Amber's former English teacher, Mr. Sear again, Mark Sear played by Jason Ritter. And Julia wants a baby, cannot conceive, and has her eyes on the barista at her office who is pregnant and she wants to adopt the barista's baby. That is one of the larger 
subplots where Joel and Julia take this girl into their house and Julia tries to encourage her every step of the way. Um, and wrenches are thrown and Sarah and Zeke try to warn her that the situation's not going to end the way that she wants it to end. But Julia's stubborn. She doesn't listen to anyone, not even her own husband. The situation goes just as badly as they thought it was going to end. And in the season's ending, um, Joel and Julia um, take in a seven-year-old boy, Victor. So they didn't get the baby they want, but they got to adopt a child. Crosby and Jasmine, after a lot of cold shoulder and a lot of dating other people, including this Jabbar's very, very, very fine pediatrician, um, reunite and they get married in season three. It's really beautiful. They get married at the Braverman home. And Sarah, and this is again, the Bravermans always show up. Sarah goes to Joel and Julia to get a loan and they loan her the money to get Seth into rehab. Seth, their ex-brother-in-law. Like, even when you're not in the family anymore, you're in the family. Just off the strength of them, of him being Amber and Drew's dad, Joel and Julia um, agreed to give her this money to get Seth into rehab. Another plot where um, Amber's on the verge of beginning beginning an affair with her boss, Bob Little, um, a job that Christina, um, you know, helped her get, but Christina nips that in the bud. Um, and another plot where Max and Jabbar get into a fight and they pull Adam and Crosby into it. And it's only a fight because Max is entitled and Adam and Christina enable his entitlement. Oh, and Alex and Hattie break up because he realizes she is a teenager and I shouldn't be here. <laughs> right. He, he realized like he's just too grown for that. Um, this, the, so the Troy, like the Troy and Zoe and Joel and Julia thing is so ugly on so many levels. Yeah. It's really ugly. Um, it's, um, it's really bad because first of all, um, it does something that a lot of adoptees, people who have been adopted, like that's one of their biggest criticism with adoption as an institution is that it commodifies children and it basically reduces, um, birth mothers to, um, factories, baby factories. Like you just pop one out for whomever this girl doesn't want to keep her baby or is considering not keeping her baby, but it's solely because she's so poor, which, and we can talk, have a whole conversation about how the adoption systems exploit poor women, especially poor women of color and unmarried women. Right. And it's, and it's made uglier by the fact that she's clearly someone who, when we meet the boyfriend, Troy, he is like, I mean, he's immediate, like he's immediately like, we know he's not like a good person. It, It doesn't take much to probably think that he was, that their relationship was an emotionally abusive one. Um, he's very controlling. Joel and Julia are essentially, um, they're like, I don't think they mean to be, but just because of the situation, it's very like emotionally manipulative. Um, she's clearly looking, Zoe, who's pregnant, she's clearly looking for someone to help her. She needs help. Um, she needs emotional, uh, and financial support and it's and then here it comes right and in a sense in the form of these two nice white people and all of that and joe and zoe is not 
Zoe doesn't read as white. She, I don't know if the actress is actually white, but she does look like she could be Latina. Um, yeah, I think Zoe's supposed to be Latinx. Be Latina, Latinx. Um, and so that makes it all the worse. It makes it all the worse, and 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 very ugly. It just, it's very ugly. It would have been better if it was just like, and it's hard because it like it does necessarily it does track with I think who the Julia character is. Julia is like a very self serving person, and Julia I guess is trying to at least in my mind in this whole plot in this season whether she realizes it or not she's trying to have a band aid baby essentially um, mm-hmm. with her husband who she's sort of run roughshod over for a very long time. And it's not that I don't, it's not that I hate the Zoe plot because I like the idea of like engaging in, in something like this, but it needed, I, it needed to be done from a place of like more, I think altruism. Like, I think I could have gotten on board with this plot if like it had been like Camille instead, like Camille meets Zoe and and then from that sort of helps her and and helps her get on her feet and then they have this and then Zoe becomes just like um like an extended part of the family. I I think I could have gotten on board with this this plot. So Julia is such a self-centered person that I don't even think she realizes that what she wants is a band-aid baby because she doesn't understand how much damage she's done to her marriage by consistently refusing to listen to or even consult her husband before making major decisions, right? Like she'll just be making decisions on her own and then informing Joel after the fact. But I actually thought that the plot was actually really well done and it's, 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 pretty realistic of how a lot of adopters behave. Her behavior wasn't seen as altruistic because it's not. It is selfish. It is, like you said, in a lot of ways, emotionally manipulative, whether she's aware of it or not, because her interest in this woman is really an interest in the child that she's carrying, interest in everything. Um, The only time when we see her taking an interest in Zoe herself is when she learns that Zoe never graduated high school and, you know, tries to um, get her that book and tries to help her with the GED, something that has nothing to do with this baby and getting this baby. And even then a case could be made that she's helping her and being nice to her so that she won't change her mind about the baby because no no forms really had been signed yet or anything like that. I thought this this plot line had a lot of moments that asked a lot from the audience because Julia is really struggling. Zoe is really struggling. Like you said, she's been in this emotionally abusive relationship. She's estranged from her mother or her sister. She really needs help. But these quote-unquote nice white people... Um, are after something, right? They're not here for her specifically. They want something from her. So when it culminates with Zoe eventually keeping her baby, seeing her baby, holding her baby, and being like, you know what, I'm poor, but I'm just going to try to find a way to make this work, I thought that was really beautiful um, because it's something that adopt adoptees and those who have given up children for adoption talk about often. Like, if I could have had just anyone, any type of financial support for one or two years after I had the baby, I would have kept my baby. Um, so I thought that was really real, and I I I liked the the storyline of the poor woman not losing her baby to this wealthy white couple. <laughs> Right. And and in that moment, I think the show is asking us to empathize or 
feel sorry for Joel and Julia, but like, like you said, it's a big ask. It's a really big ask. Right. And then when I'm seeing Zoe holding that baby with tears in her eyes, looking through the window at Julia and like Julia bursting into tears, like Julia is not the person I feel sorry for in that situation, because I know there will be days when she's holding that baby and she's thinking, did I do the right thing keeping him right? Because society really shames poor parents in a major way. I don't feel sorry for Julia. I don't because Julia already has a child. She already has a perfectly healthy child who wants for nothing. Um, this is Zoe's firstborn that they were asking her to give up <laughs> for no other reason than she was too poor to keep him. Like, what? Is, what are you? What message are you even sending at that moment? Right? Right. Like, it's reinforcing this like thought that like poor people don't deserve to have kids or like poor people shouldn't be having children, which is an ugly, which is a very very ugly one, disturbing on many levels. Yeah, but she kept the baby and later there's a scene where she takes a cab and goes to their house joel doesn't really want to see zoe because like he's hurting on julia's behalf but julia sees zoe she gives her back her grandfather's watch because zoe had previously given her um julia her grandfather's watch to give to her son so she gives the watch back to zoe um, Zoe lets her know that she she talked she contacted her mother who didn't even know she was pregnant this entire time imagine being pregnant and not being able to tell your own family meanwhile these people are trying to get your baby right she tells Julia all these things that she's mending fences with her family that her mom's going to help her with the baby and I really feel such a sense of hope for Zoe and it makes me really happy and I know that Joel and Julia are hurting but like she gets to keep her baby she gets to have her family support maybe she can get a glimmer of what all of the Bravermans have and probably take for granted right the support of a family unit when we leave Zoe we leave her with with hope which I really love Zoe and Alex as like guest stars I think we're done right by the show all the guest stars that were disposed of willy-nilly zoe and alex really had the best character arcs i feel they do they do they have like really strong ones shout out to that actress who plays zoe she's very good yeah her name is uh rose salazar and apparently she's on she's gonna be she's on the the this new show called insurgent so what do we think of season three overall um what are some favorite episodes you might have from season three season three i think ones to watch are the openers good um season three episode one i don't want to do this without you season three episode one season three episode three step right up season three episode four clear skies from here on out Season three, episode six, Tales from the Luncheonette. Um, that's the one where CeeLo Green is in it. Season three, episode 11, Missing. Yeah, season three, episode 12, Road Trip. Um, that's a really funny episode. It's where, like, the whole family, like, takes a road trip to see Zeke, to see, like, Zeke's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, like, and when, the, and when they get there, she's just, like, fucked off because she's doing her own shit. Um, wasn't she, really, like, bingo? Wasn't she a bingo or some shit? Yeah, she was, like, had it on the calendar to be at, like, bingo <laughs> or, like, bridge or something. And it was funny. Right. So we get like, to meet Blanche Braverman, the oldest Braverman. <laughs> and it's amazing because it's, like, because she, mostly because it's, like, she's, like, I do cool shit. Like, don't, sorry, kids. Um, uh, and I think it also is a good message about, you know, how parents get their own lives and do their own shit, like, after. And, like, don't expect people to always, like, be on your time because everyone has their own shit that they're doing, even the elderly. Um, Season three, 
episode 13, Just Smile. Season 3, episode 14, It Is What It Is. Um, Season 3, episode 16, Tough Love. This is where we meet Max's little wheelchair friend who... um, Yeah, Micah... He's in a wheelchair. He's Max's only friend because he doesn't have any friends at the school either. But Micah is too good for Max. And we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, he is too good for Max. That's exactly it. Um, season three, episode 17. Remember me. I'm the one who loves you. Season And then season three, episode 18. Uh, the last episode of the season, my brother's wedding, where we get to like, oh, my God. So like Dr. Joe who is amazing, buys like a house for Jasmine and then she breaks up with him and it is devastating to watch. <laughs> um, yeah. So you get to so, relive that pain as well. It's really bad. So remember we told you that Joel bought it like an apology house for Jasmine. He didn't even consult her when buying this apology house, even though sis dead ass said, I will never forgive you for this. And he didn't ask her what type of house she liked or anything like that prior to this. Now insert Dr. Joel He's really interested in in Jasmine, really loves her and Jabbar, wants to make a life with them and tells her straight up like, I want to buy a house, but I'm not trying to buy a house unless you want to live in there with me because I can't see myself living there without you. And I'm like, girl, you need to marry him and have all his babies. Right. She should have really just kept kicked Crosby to the side, been like, well, we had a cute run, but this is this is Mm. what I feel like. This is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do now with my son. Um, but season three, besides this, like, adoption plotline, besides this sort of the hiccup of, like, this Rachel Adam thing, and then, um, the Amber politician thing, that's another one that, like, I don't know, it's like, ugh, and then this Dr. Joe Jasmine thing. It's, there are other storylines, or I think, other directions that I think I would have preferred, but I don't think that it's not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, honestly, the only storyline I didn't like was Rachel Adam. Like, even when Jasmine leaves that fine pediatrician, and I know it's not a decision I would make, it kind of makes sense for her character because, like, it's very clear she and Crosby never stopped loving each other. The actors have really, really good chemistry with each other. And Parenthood as a show doesn't really dive into blended families much. So, like, all of that other stuff honestly made sense to me. So, I didn't think season three was as good as season two, but I thought it was very good. Thank you for, like, at least, like, giving Alex and Zoe a proper send-off. I will give them, like, big thumbs up for that. True. I mean, listen, after Alex got arrested at that party, it was over. (laughs) Right. But no, I thought thought they were going to drop him right there. Like, they find out that he has a... about his record before, and then, like, they completely dismiss him. But the way the show handles it is so good, and it's in layers, right? First, he has that honest conversation with Adam about, like, listen it's not the same for me as it is for you. And I basically reminding Adam, like I'm a 20 year old black recovering alcoholic. You are a 40 year old white man and pillar of the community. You're n- we're not going to be seen the same. And then goes to this kid's parents and basically advocates for Alex and pleads on his behalf because he knows that having a white man vouch for Alex is the th- one thing that's going to save him in this situation. And it does. Right. And it does. <laughs> and it's lame because like the, the kid, the white kid, he just straight up fucking lies. Like he just straight up lies. And then like, they're all drinking underage. Mm-hmm. Alex is the only person who's of age and he's not even drinking. 
and like yet he gets fingered for it. It does, I think, yeah, it does handle that whole everything, all those actions that happen that does get handled really well. Well, the kid, remember, Hattie went up to him in school and he's like, if it was up to me, I would have dropped the charges, but my parents don't want to drop the charges, which I thought was stupid on their behalf, because like you said, there were a bunch of minors in their house drinking. Like Adam really, if he was like a shitty person, would have come up to, I would have gone to their house and been like, listen, you can drop these charges or I can counter sue because you let my underage child get drunk at your house. Because right, as the homeowners, they're responsible for that. That's true. That's that nuclear option, though. Like, that's that, like... <laughs> it's, 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 it's something Adam Braverman would never do. Like, he's not that type of guy. He's not going to fuck with people like that. So he talks to them very calmly, man-to-man, makes them see Alex through his eyes, and gets them to drop the charges. And later on, when Alex and Hattie break up, Alex and Christina, who was like most against their relationship, have this really beautiful, tender moment where she's like, you know, I love you. I want the best for you. You know, um, you, you know, I still see you as family. And they gave Alex a proper send off. So like, I really thought they were just going to be like, bring up his record and be like, Alex isn't who we thought he was. The end. <laughs> <laughs> the end. And I do. And like, one thing I do love about the Alex send off is... I really like how, like, I guess, and I guess this is what makes up for me the fact that, like, he's even into Hattie is that, like, Alex is sort of taken in by the fact that the Bravermans are, like, the family that, like, he never had. And that was, like, a big part of it. Um, Because even Alex is nice to Max, right? Like, and and Max likes Alex, right? Right. Actually, he, he and Alex get along really well. And I feel like, Alex is not just like putting up with him or humoring him. Like Max is on his best behavior around Alex and that makes him likable. Right. You know, Alex likes being sort of a part of this Braverman family dynamic and and feeling like this is a family he never had and spending time with them sort of helps, I guess, heal his own sort of personal stuff, which will, which, Mm -hmm. um, We'll actually see in the reverse when you we watch Lincoln Heights. That'll be interesting. No, I agree with that. I, I can't see how a family like the Bravermans wouldn't be deeply appealing to someone who's never really had a family. And Adam and Christina are like literally the epitome of like commitment, stability, order, warmth, all that stuff that he's been lacking. And we, I mean, we even see this with when we meet Blanche Braverman. Zeke wants to have a very close relationship with his mother, but he doesn't. He never has. And as a result, that's why he's tried so hard to foster closeness with his children and his grandchildren. He's still exercising those, you know, the, the, the this feeling of um, distance that he has from his mother, Blanche. Season three really hit a lot of great, like had a lot of great moments, you guys. Had a lot of great moments. It's it's just a yeah, you know, Jason Kadams, he did that. Um, great, great family drama. And also Ron Howard, like family dramas and this type of thing, like is I de- I think definitely like his bag as well. Um, and there you have it, folks. This is 
everything that we think made the first three seasons of Parenthood good, bad, and basic. If you'd like to watch or rewatch Parenthood, it's currently streaming on Hulu. Though Parenthood was a bit overwhelmingly white for my liking, it is in many ways a very brilliant slice-of-life family drama with complex, thoroughly human characters and an excellent portrayal of a big family. Patrons, be sure to check out the GBB Parenthood Spotify playlist. Tune in next week for part two of our dissection of Parenthood and the Braverman clan. Until then, our patrons can tune into our next Gone Too Soon series episode, focusing on ABC's short-lived crime drama, Night Stalker. The episode goes live this Saturday. If you'd like to check out the series before our episode, Night Stalker is streaming over at abc.go.com. You can follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or Pocket Casts to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash good bad basic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. As always, be sure to check out our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic. And of course, be sure to follow us at Good Bad Basic Pod on Twitter. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.